This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome back to another episode of the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, bringing you news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by educational grants from Eli Lilly, Merck Sharp and Dome Corp and Novo Nordisk AS, who have had no influence on the content or the choice of faculty. While we've recently discussed optimising cardiovascular outcomes among high-risk patients, today we're focusing specifically on cardioprotective agents, but at the point before a patient will be considered at high cardiovascular risk, and we'll be answering some of your questions sent to us on this topic. In recent years, cardiovascular outcome trials have demonstrated that some GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors are associated with reduced risk of major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE, in people with established risk factors, such as previous myocardial infarction or atherosclerotic disease. However, as more data emerge on their multifactorial benefits, such as nephroprotection in the case of SGLT2 inhibitors, And as initiating with dual therapy has been shown to offer greater treatment success for longer than metformin monotherapy, should they be used more proactively? This week, I spoke to Professor Steve Bain to discuss this question. Should cardioprotective agents be offered before risk factors develop? Professor Bain is Assistant Medical Director for Research and Development for Swansea Bay University Health Board and Clinical Director of the Diabetes Research Unit in Swansea University. You can find links to his disclosures and all the publications discussed in today's interview in the episode notes. Welcome back, Professor Bain. Thank you very much for joining us on another episode. So the first question we received from one of our listeners is, what evidence is there around the cardioprotective effects of SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists in people without additional cardiovascular risk factors? Whilst it's true to say that the initial studies, the initial cardiovascular outcome trials of both SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists focused on particularly high-risk patients, so particularly those who had already had a cardiovascular event, subsequent studies have uh, included patients at lower risk. So, for example, for dapagliflozin, the declared TIMI study, about two-thirds of patients had not had a cardiovascular event prior to recruitment in the study. And then also in the the case of the GLP-1 receptor agonist in the Rewind study that looked at dulaglutide, about two-thirds of patients didn't have a cardiovascular event prior to recruitment. So we're beginning to get evidence from lower-risk groups. However, I don't think it's true to, to say that people with type 2 diabetes who have not had an event don't actually have cardiovascular disease. It's just that it hasn't manifested as a cardiovascular event, a stroke or a heart attack. And so to give another example in the Credence study, which was patients with uh, very high risk because of proteinuria, several of those had not had a cardiovascular event uh, prior to the study and therefore were deemed as primary prevention. But that wasn't really the case because we know that proteinuria itself uh, manifests as a very high cardiovascular risk in these patients. So to summarize, we're getting more data from lower risk uh, individuals. And I think generally speaking, we're seeing that the reduction in cardiovascular events is also seen. So the relative risk reductions are also seen in those patients at lower risk. But of course, the absolute benefit they gain is less because their absolute risk of a cardiovascular event is so much higher if they've already had one. 
And how about people who do not have established disease, but do have a number of potential risk factors such as hypertension, high cholesterol or smoke regularly? Do we have any data exploring these populations? So I think, I think it's true to say that even the, the cardiovascular outcome trials of SGLT2 inhibitors and um, GLP-1 receptor agonists that have included lower risk patients um, in that they've not had a previous cardiovascular event, these individuals are still at higher risk by virtue of other comorbidities, and that would include hypertension, presence of microalbuminuria, uh, for example. And in my mind, there's no doubt that those individuals also gain cardiovascular benefit and indeed other benefits from taking these two classes of agents. I think particularly with the SGLT2 inhibitors, we see renal benefits and we see benefits in terms of hospitalization for heart failure, which are uniform across the class. With the GLP-1 receptor agonists, we see renal benefits largely driven by reductions in proteinuria, but there is a big study ongoing at the moment to see whether that equates to harder renal endpoints, such as reductions in loss of uh, estimated GFR or indeed renal endpoints. Thank you. And another question here that was sent in to us, Following the VERIFY trial, 2019 ESD-ADA guideline updates now recommend discussing initiating treatment with dual therapy with newly diagnosed patients, as these are associated with a lower rate of treatment failure. Similarly, the ESD-ADA algorithm recommends an SGLT2 inhibitor or GLP-1 agonist as a treatment option for most patient presentations, including where weight loss is warranted or where hyperglycemia needs to be avoided. Considering both of these points, is there some logic to consider initiating treatment with either metformin plus GLP-1 receptor agonist or metformin plus SGLT2 inhibitor in newly diagnosed patients? So I think there's no doubt that the VERIFY study that was published in 2019 has conclusively demonstrated that using two therapies early in the uh, treatment of type 2 diabetes leads to better glycemic control and less um, likelihood of early treatment failure when you're looking at uh, HbA1c or glucose lowering. And I don't, I don't think that was a great surprise to anyone. And outside of a trial setting, the benefits are probably even greater in terms of attaining glucose controls because uh, you have the added phenomenon of uh, clinical inertia that is so common in diabetes treatments throughout throughout most uh, countries. So uh, that led to a change in recommendation. Should that recommendation extend into SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists so as to use both of those agents earlier in the treatment of diabetes? Well, I think it should. Um, I think the reasons that it hasn't yet is because these are relatively new classes of drugs. And so uh, clinicians are getting used to using them. Look, of course, there's the issue around the GLP-1 receptor agonist class until very recently been an injectable, and I think there's generally a reluctance to introduce injectable therapies early in treatment, and also the fact that the GLP-1 receptor agonists are more expensive. You'll recall that in Verify, the combination of medicines that was used <clears throat> was metformin and uh, uh, pildagliptin, uh, so vildagliptin is relatively new and I guess relatively expensive in some countries, although it's now off patent, uh, whereas the SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists are still on patent because they are newer agents. So I think going forwards, we will definitely see 
uh, earlier combinations of metformin with SGLT2 and going forwards beyond that earlier combinations of uh, metformin with GLP-1 receptor agonists, especially now that we have an oral GLP-1 receptor agonist uh, in the form of oral semaglutide. And in these discussions about initiating with combination therapy, what sort of things should be discussed with patients? When you're putting people onto dual therapy at the onset of treatment, then perhaps you need to do a little bit more in terms of expl uh, explanation because most people with type 2 diabetes will have gone through a period of lifestyle intervention, so attempting to achieve good control using uh, diet and uh, taking more exercise and with the hope of losing weight. So I think going straight into two therapies might give the impression that their condition is more uh, severe or their deterioration is more than they've anticipated. However, I think we should be making the point that the best treatment for all aspects of diabetes is prevention. And if we can get in early and get good glucose control, along with the added benefits from the SGLT2 class and the GLP-1 receptor class that are almost certainly not dependent on glucose lowering, then I think we can sell this idea to individuals with type 2 diabetes that we're looking at getting in early to provide health in their uh, later years and to prevent complications of diabetes that are not solely related to their glucose levels. Do you have any other recommendations to our listeners about when they should consider using these agents? Are there cardioprotective effects worth considering in any scenario other than established cardiovascular disease? So I, I think going forwards, um, we'll be using these classes of uh, glucose lowering therapies much earlier and much more frequently in people with type 2 diabetes. It's worth, worth pointing out that the European Society of Cardiology has already recommended these two classes of uh, glucose lowering therapy to use before metformin. Uh, the idea there is that the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonists have got hard cardiovascular benefits that have been demonstrated in clinical trials, whereas metformin has got only the UK PDS in a subgroup of individuals showing benefit. And you know, they would argue that by using metformin, you're introducing a delay in using therapies that have got known and proven, clinical trial proven benefits. And why would you do that? Well, I guess at the moment we do it because we're so used to using metformin and there is this uh, price uh, pressure to use metformin before the other agents. I think it's also worth pointing out that it's not just cardiovascular benefits, but certainly for the SGLT2 inhibitor, there's marked reductions in heart failure that is seen throughout the spectrum of diabetes. And now more recently, evidence of renal protection as well in terms of uh, preservation of GFR and hard renal endpoints. So I think there are lots of other reasons for considering uh, these classes of drugs for glucose ther uh, lowering therapy in people with type 2 diabetes because they are so prone to the other comorbidities. And do you have any other final remarks you'd like to share with our listeners today? I think all, all I'd say is that this has been a, a time of massive change in type 2 diabetes. We should be very grateful that the cardiovascular outcome trials were mandated by the FDA and subsequently other um, regulatory authorities because we now know so much more about the new glucose lowering therapies than we do about the established ones such as metformin and sulfonylureas and we're now able to really pinpoint 
these treatments for suitable patients and I think we'll be using them at a much earlier stage in the future. Thanks again for your time talking with us, Professor Bain. This brings us to the end of today's episode. To summarise, there are limited available data on the cardioprotective effects of SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists in lower-risk populations. The data available so far seem to suggest that for people at lower cardiovascular risk, these agents offer a similar relative risk reduction, but a lower absolute risk reduction compared to those at higher risk. As more healthcare providers may consider initiating dual therapy earlier, it will be important to communicate with these patients to ensure they understand the goal of reducing long-term complications as well as controlling glycemia in the short term. In a few episodes' time, we'll be examining more unanswered questions in diabetes, this time looking at what happens to cardiorenal risk if GLP-1 receptor agonists and SGLT2 inhibitors are given in combination. We'll be speaking to Professor Darren Maguire, who's an expert in cardiovascular outcomes trials with a focus in diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So if you have a question for Professor Maguire on this topic, please send us an email at contact at knowledgeandpractice.eu or message us on social media. We'll put links to these in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode when we'll be looking at renal risk factors in type 2 diabetes.